Hello, and welcome to Great Xmentations. In this podcast, I dissect individual issues of Uncanny X-Men, and I explore what makes each issue great, and sometimes what makes each issue not so great. You can find video versions with extra bonus content of all these episodes over at my YouTube channel, or by hitting up my website, greatexmentations.com. In today's episode, I'm taking a look at Uncanny X-Men number 192. Let's go. Uncanny X-Men number 192 is called Fun and Games, but unlike its namesake, not a ton of fun was had in reading this. It was an okay issue. Nothing too big happened in it, so it's not like the X-Men had a super crazy adventure or anything exciting like that, but the issue did have its good moments, so overall it was, yeah, just okay. When the issue begins, the team can be seen playing hide-and-seek, hence the issue's title, but they are interrupted by the Magus's sudden arrival to Earth. He's on the hunt to kill his son Warlock, and luckily the X-Men are there to get in his way before he can do that. This issue also marks the return of Kitty Pride and Wolverine to the team after their time spent in Japan together, and we also learn that it was actually Kate Pride who sent Rachel into this timeline in the first place. This issue just felt like a big change of pace when compared to the last two issues. We still got some fighting and some fun mutant moments, but overall it was like a pretty slow issue that mostly just deals with interpersonal dynamics of the team. It doesn't really deal with any of the fallout from the previous issues, namely Nimrod's sudden arrival into this timeline, but I didn't think that was such a bad thing because like an easy, slower read was kind of what I was looking for coming off of that heavy Kulan Goth arc. Knowing that Nimrod is here to hunt mutants and now with the Magus on the radar too, it doesn't look like things are going to be slowing down for the X-Men anytime soon, so it's good to catch our breaths when we get the chance, and an issue like this is very breath-catchy. So without further ado, let's get right into it. Here are my highlights and lowlights from Uncanny X-Men number 192. Nightcrawler Nightcrawler is the new interim leader of the team. Even though Storm is still hanging out with them ever since her cruise to Africa was interrupted by Kulangath's spell, she still seems to be apprehensive about leading them without her powers, and so Nightcrawler is stepping up to be her replacement. He's not very confident in his leadership abilities yet though, and he voices his concerns about it to the team after he lets Magus get away. Wolverine gives him a bit of a boost and says no one was in any shape to fight him, but it doesn't seem to do Nightcrawler's ego much good. It's interesting for me to see Kurt insecure like this. Later on, he does go on to become a great leader in the X-Men's world, and I think he's the most effective leader of the team Excalibur. That felt like a team that he really had ownership over and that he was able to like craft into making it his own vision. I think that that comfort level with him and Excalibur really comes with him having been like a founding member of that team, and with Kurt being the third or fourth leader of the X-Men by this point, and only by default really, it's no wonder why he feels a bit green about his skills here. Or should I say blue? His idea of training the team involves getting everyone outside to play hide and seek. I guess he's looking to differentiate his style from everyone who came before him, and he's starting by doing away with the Danger Room sessions. He thinks that this will help hone the X-Men's sleuthing skills, particularly by playing in the dark, 
but instead of playing the game the traditional way, they are playing it the X-Men's way, and that entails finding your opponent and then trying to beat them up. <laughs> it doesn't exactly hold the same whimsy as, say, just tagging someone to be it, but kudos to Nightcrawler for thinking outside of the box. Nightcrawler ends up winning the game after dropping both of his teammates into the river, and it doesn't really feel as though the game benefited his teammates as much as it just showcased how he can blend in with the knight. So I think the odds were stacked ever in his favor for this game to begin with, and he probably actually knew that. Overall, I think that this issue did a good job of showing Nightcrawler as like a team player who is trying awkwardly to squeeze into a team leader role. He's good at what he's good at, such as fighting together and cheering up his teammates, but he's definitely got some room to grow in terms of developing some self-confidence. And even though it doesn't feel like this leadership position is one that he explicitly wants, I like seeing him take on the challenge. Rogue. Rogue is looking great in her latest X uniform. She's done away with the orange tunic and is now here sporting a brand new green jumper. What's more is that this outfit manages to stay in one piece by the end of the issue, even after her battle with the Magus, which is uh, pretty good for a rogue costume. Rogue's big story in this issue is about her trying to discover if she has access to Carol Danvers' seventh sense. Rogue developed her trademark strength and flight ever since she first absorbed them from Carol, but there was no sign yet of those precognitive abilities that Carol also used to have. Nightcrawler is the one who brings this up to her, and he tries to activate them by engaging in, like, a teleporting tickle war with her, but he just ends up being super inappropriate and handsy and refuses to stop tickling her even after she tells him to. Eventually enough is enough and she gets physical with him by punching him to make him stop, and though it does get him to stop, it also endangers his life and she has to save him before he smashes himself into the cliffside wall. Nightcrawler quickly apologizes, but then he makes things worse by taunting her for a kiss, which is like something that of course Rogue can't do no matter how much she might want to, and she's sensitive about that, so she drops him into the river and then flies away for some alone time. Even though Nightcrawler kind of comes across as like a well-intentioned jerk in these panels, everyone fails to see that his little tickle fest that he did actually did the trick. He was teleporting around her so rapidly that there was no way for Rogue to know where he was going to be next, and so the fact that she could actually anticipate his location at some point in order to punch him means that she must have tapped into Carol's seventh sense in order to predict it. I think that breakthrough moment actually got overshadowed by the kissing comment drama that followed, so no one really brings it up and congratulates Rogue. But Rogue does get a second chance to test the ability later when she's battling Magus. She's hunting him down and has to dodge all of his attacks, and she mentions that she's able to avoid them because something inside of her is giving her, like, a nudge about what they're going to be. Carol's seventh sense is definitely not something she can control, and it never really becomes a mainstay in Rogue's power set anyway. I think that's a good thing because to me, Rogue was always better off as the team's brawler. There was something dissonant that I loved about Rogue having that super strength, yet also being like a sensitive southern belle, and it just always rang as like a super interesting contrast to me. I gotta give props to Rogue as well for how she handles the Magus. She puts her own safety on the line and gives him a big ol' smooch so that she can absorb his psyche and learn exactly what they're up against. 
It's pretty risky for Rogue to use her powers on an alien like that. There's really no telling what the outcome could have been here, so while it was definitely a brave move and one that I like to see, it was also kind of stupid because she did put not only herself at risk here by doing that, but if she had turned evil or became inert because of the techno-organic feedback, then she could have also put her teammates at risk as well. But you never know until you try, and so even though the experience isn't pleasant for Rogue, she simply ends up becoming living circuitry for a bit, but does survive to tell the tale. The X-Men made pretty short work of Magus in this particular battle, but Rogue did learn that his power is immense and that if he wanted to, he could end up destroying their entire world, so they should just really consider themselves lucky. Colossus Colossus is dealing mostly with matters of the heart in this issue. He worries about Kitty coming back to the team, considering the fact that the only reason she left in the first place was because he so carelessly dumped her. And it appears as though he doesn't really know how he's supposed to feel about the whole situation now, because he thinks he might like her again. Oh, this guy is so confusing. He professes that his feelings for Kitty did indeed change after he fell in love with Zaji during the Secret War, but now that they've both been out of his life for so long, he's really not sure what to feel. I go over Colossus' relationship with Kitty and Zaji in detail in my review for Uncanny X-Men number 183, so be sure to check that out if you want the 411 on what happened there, but the fact that he is still reeling over Zaji is crazy to me. He should have shaken off whatever funk she put him under by now, but I guess her fading memory mired with his guilt over dumping Kitty has really just left his mind and heart more muddled than ever. At least he gets to take some of his romance frustrations out in the battle though with Magus. He pummels on him over and over again, and I mean, I know the Technarch species are like animated by nature, but the way Colossus just pounds on Magus makes him look like a humanoid punching bag. There's a funny battle right after Colossus finishes punching him where I think the art was like a bit skewed in the print shop or something because even though Peter's in his steel form while he's beating up Magus, it looks like he's suddenly really got his swole on and his body is starting to look outrageously jacked compared to the teensy size of his head. Way to keep giving us those aspirational body goals, Marvel. I was actually super worried while Colossus was beating up Magus, because anytime any character gets even remotely close to a Technarch, all I can think of is Phalanx Assimilation, and even the slightest body contact freaks me out that their life glow is about to get drained. If I were Colossus, I would be super hesitant about getting close to Magus, though I'm not sure if organic steel can be transmuted the way everything else organic can be. When the Magus had a hold of Rogue, she seemed to be safe from his touch because he only had a hold of her clothes as opposed to her flesh. So as long as Colossus stays in a steel form while he's attacking, then maybe that means he's just as safe? I don't know. I'm sure there's like a comic that addresses this point somewhere out there. So if anyone knows if Colossus' steel form is resistant to Technarch assimilation, please let me know. Magus the Magus is a Technarch alien who comes to Earth in this issue in pursuit of his son, Warlock. He wants to kill Warlock, but not because he hates him or anything, but just because that's what the Technarch species does. They engage in mortal combat with each other to prove who is strongest of the progeny. 
And since Warlock refused to do that with his father, it brought shame to them and their family or whatever. And now he must hunt down Warlock himself and see to it that their homeworld's tradition is upheld. Colossus sums all of this up very nicely for the reader in like a super expository driven speech bubble. And then the X-Men waste no time in investigating and battling the Magus themselves. The whole battle felt very sudden and a bit forced to me in this issue, if I'm being honest. It was like Marvel wanted this issue to be a soft issue after the Kulan Goth saga, but they realized, ah, we also need to make sure it has some action. So they added in this kind of random, somewhat unprovoked battle with the Magus just for good measure. I mean, granted, he does attack the X-Men first, so technically they are just defending themselves, but it's very much like an attack first and ask questions later situation. I think contextually, Magus's relationship with Warlock is a lot more complicated and nuanced than the X-Men are giving it credit for here. Obviously, they are defending their friend from Magus's clear intent to kill him, but I mean, that's what the Technarchs do. That's their culture. They are literally hardwired to be that way. Even though Magus wants to kill Warlock, he still, like, loves him in his own twisted way. He's even proud of Warlock for having aligned himself with such powerful allies as the X-Men. It doesn't make any sense to us because that's not how we place value on relationships that we form, but in the Technarch world, I think power or strength equals love, and so this is just Magus's way of showing his love for Warlock. I almost feel like I want the X-Men to try to educate him here instead of fight with him and see if they can come to some sort of like understanding about their different cultures. I mean, even as I say that, I'm realizing it's a little bit too woke for an X-Men comic, even for my taste, and that it would not have made for a very exciting introduction to Magus, so I guess, yeah, I am happy that we got some senseless violence here instead, even if I don't necessarily believe that the fighting was really in service of anything. But speaking of the battle, I really don't like how the X-Men made such short work of Magus. He's supposed to be this almighty tyrant ruler of his homeworld, and yet three measly ex-people can beat him up like this? That doesn't really strike fear into my heart, and now I struggle to see the Magus as a threat. Luckily, Rogue does some explaining after she absorbs him, and it turns out that he was just like in a weakened state after his space travel, hence why he was so easily defeated. She confirms that he does actually have the power to destroy everything, we just haven't seen it yet. I'm happy that Magus shows off some of this incredible power at the end of the battle though, whenever he appears in the sky and threatens them, because that was really the first formidable thing that he really showed us, and yeah, it was pretty impressive. Still, nothing really came out of this battle for me. Like, nothing was really solved because there wasn't really anything to solve, and all I felt it did was create a new villain for the X-Men's rogue gallery. And that's not a bad thing, it's how a lot of great villains start their journeys, but it does feel kind of tacked on and pointless to me when it happens in this kind of way. I certainly didn't hate the battle, but I didn't love it from a story perspective either. I actually think this whole battle was meant to mirror how the team played hide and seek at the beginning of the issue anyway. In the beginning, they're all out looking for each other, and then later they have to look for Magus in a very similar way, so if that was to be some sort of callback, then well done, because even the idea of hide-and-seek felt a bit off to me in the beginning, but I don't mind it so much if it's being used as like a storytelling device. Professor X Professor X is one of the team members meeting Kitty and Wolverine at the airport. 
He's there with Storm, Ilyana, and Rachel, and he's casually jotting down some notes on people's thoughts that he's scanning for a lecture that he plans to give at Columbia University. For someone who so frequently tells his students to only use their powers responsibly, he seems to be fine shirking the rules for his own double standard. I mean, which is it, Professor? Are you the pot or are you the kettle? He continues to be liberal with his telepathy later on, too, when the team is hunting for the Magus. A police officer tells them to skedaddle away from the scene, and he meddles with the officer's mind, first that he sees them as civilians instead of as superheroes, and then next with the officer's memories, so that he won't even really remember that they were there in the first place. Call me crazy, but that doesn't sound like using your power responsibly. Even Wolverine points out that Charles has gotten a bit too cozy with sneaking into people's noggins unannounced, and usually when Wolverine picks up on something, you can be sure it's a fact. My take on this is that he's just so happy to be able to walk again and to be able to be with his team on the field that he's just feeling really loosey-goosey and wants to prove his worth. Since he's not a leader anymore, he wants to be able to contribute in some way, and so he's proving to them that he's still got what it takes to be among them, even if it isn't in like a leading capacity. Tragedy strikes a little while later for him though, after he finishes giving his lecture at Columbia University about mutants, and he's totally on cloud nine and life is going really good for him, he suddenly sees some anti-mutant hate speech spray painted onto the wall, and it's soon followed by an anti-mutant hate group itself. He's cornered by them, but it's not as a mutant because his identity is still secret, but more so as a mutant sympathizer, and it's enough for them to get violent with him. They beat him up in a really graphic display of hatred until he's bloody and unconscious on the ground. It's really quite a chilling and grim end for this issue, because up until this point, Xavier was like the happiest I've ever seen him. You could tell that he was really enjoying life and feeling reinvigorated, and then bam, this happens. His body ends up getting pulled into a dark alleyway by some mysterious figure, which I'm guessing is either a Morlock or a homeless human, so even though we don't know what becomes of him yet, I predict in the next issue, he's going to learn that this savior of his is probably someone who has experienced some form of hate as well, and so that's why he came to his rescue. It's going to reawaken Xavier's senses to the harsh truths of the world and maybe reignite the fight for human rights inside of him and maybe he'll think twice about being happy again. Rachel and Kitty Neither of these two characters have very big roles on this issue, but we do learn a little bit more about them. Rachel is one of the X-Men waiting in the airport for Kitty to return from Japan, and while she's waiting, she has some sort of like sudden flashback memory thing. It's confusing to Rachel because this isn't necessarily something that she remembers, but it's her in her hound costume, and then she sees the Kate pride from her timeline, so she knows that it must be like a repressed memory of some sort. In her flashback, she and Kate are sneaking into a guarded facility in order to access a time travel device, and it turns out that Rachel learns that that was actually Kate who sent her back into this reality, and it wasn't just something she did herself. The memory ends on a weird note after Kate calls her Dark Phoenix, which sounds ominous and foreboding, and then she's suddenly just brought back into present day by Kitty, who is looking mighty fierce after her time spent in Japan. 
Kitty and Wolverine have their reunion moment with the X-Men, and it turns out that Kitty actually remembers who Rachel is from the time that she herself spent in the Days of Future Past storyline. Kitty recalls that Rachel was her protector while she was stuck in that reality. This is a great setup for Kitty and Rachel to meet again. I love that now Rachel will be meeting Kitty on Kitty's terms, whereas before it was Kitty who was thrust into Rachel's hellish life. Rachel only ever knew Kitty as the adult Kate, so it will be nice now for her to get to know her best friend at an age that is much closer to her own. Even though these panels don't really do much in terms of adding value to this particular issue, I think they gave us some good crumbs, and I'm curious to learn more about this all, particularly why did Kate call Rachel Dark Phoenix? I also like how the girls reference the Nimrod project in Rachel's flashback. Nimrod is now in the present day thanks to Doctor Strange's spell last issue, but none of the X-Men know about that yet, so the writers here are really setting up some high-stakes stories with long-held grudges. Fashion. Here are a few fashionable moments that I want to highlight from this issue. First, I'd like to give some attention to Storm's glittering earrings. The artist goes out of their way to make sure that we are aware of just how lavish these ear danglers look. And literally, in every scene that Storm shows up in, they are sparkling in the bright airport fluorescent lights. Is it just the lighting that's giving these earrings their rich aesthetic, or are they actually as beautiful as they seem? We'll never know, because they don't have any story point whatsoever in this issue. They are just here to exist as dazzlers, and dazzle they do. Next up is Kitty Pride. I was shocked when I saw what she was wearing in this issue, and I mean that in the best of ways. It looks like Japan was really good for her, and she matured a whole lot while she was away. For someone who was dismissing Storm for changing her look so drastically just a few issues ago, Kitty has certainly had a change of heart regarding her own style, and it looks like her outfit here is actually taking a cue from Storm's. There's the fishnets and the double belts, and even the haircut is sort of styled into like a neo-mohawk thing. Clearly, Kitty just needed to get away from it all to find her true self, and as it turns out, her true self is an 80s glam rocker MTV girl. Lastly, I want to draw attention to Ileana's sunglasses. When I first saw them, I was like, whoa, what on earth is she wearing? And I absolutely loved them. They look like they're a hard, light blue, rectangular plastic wraparound thing, and I just thought they were so obscure that they looked awesome. It wasn't until I looked into the panel closer that I realized she is in fact not wearing giant sunglasses at all, but that what I'm seeing is actually just the shadow cast from the brim of the hat that she's wearing. I mean, color me disappointed, because even though the buckaroo bonsai hat is in itself a great choice, I just think the whole look looks incomplete now after I've seen what it looks like with a big ol' pair of wraparound shades. Ads. This issue, I'm highlighting the Marvel Market Research ad. Chalk it up to Marvel for wanting to give the readers what they want. Long before there were browser cookies and algorithms that dictate what internet ads we see, Marvel was offering to cater the ad selection to the readers by having them fill out this form about what type of ads they prefer to see in their comics. They even used Spider-Man to help them do it. The ad asks for fairly straightforward information, name, address, age, and then just ticking the box for what your interests are. 
The options are fairly limited though, and you only get to select from things like candy and snacks and clothing and sneakers. It seems like Marvel didn't really expect its readership to be crazy diverse in its interests. How crazy is it that TV and film aren't one of the options here though? It's crazy to think how little an emphasis was put on broadcasting in these days, considering what has become of Marvel and the MCU. Well, that's it for this issue. Thanks for tuning in. This issue was a pretty easy read and was fairly light on plot, so definitely a lighter issue when compared to the previous two. Feel free to browse my channel for more reviews like this one, or check me out on social media for a splattering of other X content. Thanks again for stopping by today, and be sure to come back soon for more great X-mentations. <laughs>